I didn't know that's where we were starting. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am. Yeah. It's coming. How far along are you? Uh, Six weeks left to go. I'm not good with the week thing. Yeah. Can you stop saying the weeks when they're like five years old? (laughs) My child is 1,500 weeks. What the heck does that mean? I have to do math to figure out how old your kid is? Exactly. What is this? I know I have six weeks left. We've reached the point where it's not a how far along. It's a countdown. Yeah. So that's when I know it's near. Yeah. It's coming. Next, you know, we should definitely do something on pediatric dysphagia. Yeah, for sure. Because you're going to be like, okay, so this whole nursing situation, it is real. Hopefully we don't have to do the podcast out of necessity. Yeah, (laughs) it's true. Yeah, so... uh, Asking for a friend. Exactly. Pediatric dysphagia. (laughs) Anonymous post. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so today we're talking about diet and exercise. Now, when you guys hear diet and exercise, you're probably thinking about getting in shape for your summer (laughs) beach body, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking a lot more about what speech pathologists do the most, which is change diets and recommend exercises. Those are our primary modes of quote unquote rehab. And Alicia and I are talking today about whether or not those are as widespread as they are because they should be and because they actually rehabilitate a swallow or because we don't really understand what they do and when they should be used. And it was kind of a provocative moment when Alicia, when you said, um, I forget what happened and who, why, how this even came about, but you said something like, I don't, I don't prescribe thick and liquids. And I was like, shots fired <laughs> like gr- grenades dropped like well, that's a, that's a, I mean look for me like I'm all about hearing what people do but that's actually in the grand scheme of what speech pathologists do do what speech pathologists do that is a bold statement so yeah. talk to us about that unpack that notion yeah i think it i think the conversation happened because it's you know, on the, uh, a lot of the Facebook forums and, and message groups, a lot of conversation is centered around the use of thickeners and the use of compensatory strategies and when to recommend what sort of diets. And I just had a moment where I was like, why is this 90% of the conversation? I don't even remember the last time I recommended thickened liquids for a patient. Truly, I, I was thinking back and I, and I posted it on Facebook to say, it's out there. People are thickening liquids. It's a thing. When is it appropriate? And I couldn't even think of the last time where I said, you know what, in this patient, this is the most appropriate course for this patient. I just, I couldn't think of it. Okay. Um, so can I just say your, I just want to start by saying your anecdotal opinion about what you see on Facebook is backed by the literature. Mm-hmm. I believe the paper is by Giselle Carnaby where she points out that when SLPs, <clears throat> excuse me, when SLPs indicate what they do the most, thickening liquids is among the most frequently prescribed ways to ameliorate what they deem to be a disordered swallow. Is that fair? And she's not the only person who's done any kind of study on what SLPs do the most, but most people will agree that thickening liquids is commonplace in an SLP scope of practice. 
Yeah, I think the paper is the usual, what is usual care in dysphagia rehabilitation? Right. What year, what year is that? Do you happen to know? 2015. Okay, I thought it was 13. Yep. Okay. It's a great paper. It was a survey that was conducted where they looked at what are the practice patterns for um, speech pathologists and, and what are they recommending? And really the consensus was that it's nothing is uniform. Mm-hmm. So they gave a bunch of cases and said, you know, what treatment would you recommend? And I think there was over... 50, that actually might even be very conservative, 50 different combinations of diet and strategies and maneuvers with very, very little on exercise, rehabilitative strategies that target the physiology. It was all on bolus modification Mm -hmm. for the most part. So that that helps me to segue into, let's talk about diet and let's talk about exercise. Because I think the way things work is, People approach a patient saying, does this person have dysphagia, AKA do they aspirate, even though they're not the same thing, Mm -hmm. just is this person safe to take this diet? Do they need a diet change? That's often why people feel that they're called to a patient and that's why we're called to a patient, right? A lot of times when we get a consultation. Um, A lot of people would argue the first thing we need to be figuring out is, is there a pathophysiology that leads to aberrant bolus flow? Mm -hmm. Not is there aberrant bolus flow and oh, by the way, we could give or take how much we care about the pathophysiology. So as a field, we're starting to try to change that approach. Um, And my argument is that the probably the reason that that's our first go-to is because if we don't recommend a diet, we are probably more likely to get in trouble than if we don't know how laryngeal vestibule closure happens, Mm -hmm. right? So there's no incentive to understand swallowing physiology. There's more incentive to recommend a diet, right? So I think that's probably why people focus so much on what is safe, on the whole concept of diet. But with that in mind, would you say that when you started your career, you did do a lot of thickening and then you changed? I'm just trying to understand Mm-hmm. how you came to a place where you say it you can't think of the last time where you really said it is so appropriate that this patient thicken their liquids and what how your decision making has changed over time yeah that's a really great question absolutely it has changed and evolved tremendously since when i started practicing and i'm going to come back to this concept a lot throughout this podcast because i think delineating where you practice is really important because I worked primarily in acute care. So I think a lot of the practice patterns that occur in acute care is thickened liquids are recommended to get patients over a hump. So what's unique about acute care is that you get patients that come in really, really sick, but you can expect them to be a totally different person in a couple of days. So a lot of recommendations that I've seen anecdotally in my clinical practice have been thickened liquids used as a band-aid, as let's just have them take thickened liquids until they cognitively improve, until they medically improve. We don't want them aspirating, and then we can reass- it's all It's a lot of reassessment that happens in acute care. So you see them, a couple days later you do a reassessment, and maybe the diet is evolving four or five times over a week period. So when I first started practicing clinically, that was very, that was common practice was 
to recommend thickened liquids, you'd reevaluate with the goal to have them not be on thickened liquids when they discharged from the hospital. Mm-hmm. The problem with that is multiple things. One being the concept that thickened liquids were safer in the first place. Mm. That's yeah. one. So we're going to have to unpack that eventually in yep. this podcast. We are. The second thing is that that's all fine and dandy, but what happens is patients get discharged when you're not expecting them to. Mm. And they leave on puree, honey-thick liquids. They go to a rehab host- They go to a rehab unit on this diet, and that diet stays with them mm-hmm. for a very long period of time. Sometimes it's based on a bedside. Sometimes it is based on an instrumental. Mm-hmm. But they're a different person than they were exactly a week ago. And I've heard some people say they don't want to do a fluoro too early because they know it's going to be their only snapshot in time, right. and they are worried that they're going to ch- that they're going to change and not represent what a more plateaued behavior would look like. Exactly. So I think where my where I changed mainly was less because of the I just didn't have time to see them. And I'm not going to see them again, so I'm going to put them on thin liquids because that's what I want them to be discharged on. It was more on, I actually don't think that them being on thick and li- or thin liquids is so bad. So let me just understand it what you're saying. took the fear out of yeah. it, right? So, okay, that's exactly it. Are you saying that the more you practice, the more you question the extent to which thickening liquids was actually the right thing to do anyway? Yes. Absolutely. So you list a lot of things that are concerns. Certainly they can get discharged with that diet, and they think it's going to be hump, and they're going to get them through it in time to get them back to thins. Sure, I get that logistic issue. Um, But it sounds to me like there was no evidence to justify the thickening other than fear, and that's what everybody else is doing. Right. And in that population. And there was an instance, I'll never forget this, and you know those like stupid little things that you remember, they stay with you. I was a student. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was seeing a patient, and you know, I was right at that point where I was starting to do fluoros independently. And you know, you're walking to radiology, and you're like, "Holy crap! I'm doing this by myself. I make my own decisions. This is it's scary at first when yeah. you're a student." And I had a patient that aspirated on one swallow of thin liquid. Okay. And all the other swallows were fine, and I remember sitting there. I like I can remember right where I was sitting and thinking to myself, I just don't I just can't imagine not putting this person on thin liquids. Mm-hmm. But they aspirated thin liquids. Mm-hmm. And the way that the culture was at the time and the way that I was taught in in every aspect of my training was if there's a tick mark in thin liquids for aspiration, mm-hmm. you can't recommend that. Mm-hmm. It was aspiration. Yeah, meaning you if there's a if there's evidence that they can or have aspirated on thins, you take that thin away. Exactly. The idea being, well, you're going to document in your note that the patient aspirated thin liquids and you're going to recommend that? Yeah. That's not appropriate. So I did it anyway. I recommended thin liquids. I said, I just just can't imagine this person not drinking thin liquids. Mm -hmm. And I got confronted about it later saying, you said that they aspirated thin, why would you recommend that? That's Mm -hmm. like if, the way that it was, the conversation happened was, you know they're allergic to- Nuts. Nuts, why did you feed them nuts? Like it was so like, (laughs) like, no concept of why, like you have to recommend nectar thick liquids, that's 
they didn't aspirate that. That's what they were safe on. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that. And yeah. it, I think that scarred me a little bit. You know, what, you know what's interesting? But it scarred you in the direction of being a rebel and thinking through it and saying, I'm not going to let people mm-hmm. uh, sort of push me into this corner of yeah. you do what we do or you're going to get in trouble and we're going to watch it and laugh at you from the schoolyard kind right. of situation, which unfortunately is how this can sometimes be. Yes. And I, I probably spent too long in my career thinking that Diet recommendations and dysphagia was a um, was a if X then Y. Yeah. Right. So sure. if they aspirate this, you recommend that. Mm-hmm. If you see this, then you do that. And it's mm-hmm. just very, um, well, that's what I saw. This is what I recommend. And I didn't realize until I was a little more mature in my career that I really embraced the gray, mm-hmm. and that it's just not that concrete it's yeah. not that simple yeah. that you can have pa- patients that aspirate everything but can we go back to something else you said about safe the I- yeah. so the argument is that it is safer without it can we think about what it means when someone says safe we've talked about this in our january podcast which was like a a, a year review yeah. i think advice and i in many papers there was this concept of safe that i would write and ed was like uh why the word safe? And I just want to dive into that because yeah. there is this an assumption that if anyone aspirates, it is unsafe and that an unsafe means aspiration pneumonia. Yep. Like, so I guess what I'm trying to figure out is, is there any evidence? I have not seen any. Is there any evidence showing that people who swallow thin liquids when they aspirate on them have a higher likelihood of aspiration pneumonia than equally sick, equally, you know, oral care, those same kinds of patients who have thickened liquids Mm -hmm. who then eventually get pneumonia. My understanding is it's not the aspiration so much as it is the how sick somebody is, how ambulatory somebody is, and their oral care. And if those things are actually within reasonable limits, there are many populations, head and neck cancer, et cetera, where these are maybe young men who've had HPV and had some kind of surgery or they've had radiation, uh, so, uh, chemo rad treatment, right. and they aspirate all the time. Right. And they might not even be very sensitive to that aspiration, but they've never had pneumonia. And they, they would probably argue their quality of life is better than if they were subject to thick and liquids for the rest of their life, especially since they might not even be able to be able to move thick and liquids through their system exactly. if they have very rigid structures. Exactly. So my my thought, what are your thoughts on that? Because I, I just haven't seen the evidence showing that all things, the system being reasonable, mm-hmm. reasonably able to tolerate some aspiration absolutely requires a thick and liquids and that we're making them safer. We might not be doing anything. We might be making them right. unsafe because now we're changing their diet without real evidence behind that it's going to be better. Exactly. There's a great paper by um, Susan Langmore that was published in Dysphagia in the late 90s called... 98, the one yep. about... Yep. Predictors of yep. Aspiration Pneumonia, How Important is Dysphagia? I love, first that of all, when titles I know. are just out there like yeah. that, like, how important is dysphagia? Yeah. That, I just, I love when people do that. Um, the other thing is, this is a, one of the first papers that I really read and opened my eyes to, there's a bigger issue than, it. you know, this paper made me think outside of the voice box. Yeah. So it wasn't just about how do we make the airway close better. It was like, what does it matter if 
if nothing is going to happen, good or bad. Yeah. No, in the paper, she just talks about that it's really not just about what is aspirated. It's the overall medical status of the patient and the dental status. And are they feeding? Are they tube dependent? There's Mm -hmm. so many other factors that play into whether or not somebody develops pneumonia. That's so much bigger than just what we see in video fluoroscopy that they aspirated that one time. That's not a predictor of pneumonia. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. the it's the conglomerate of everything else together that decides the health of the patient. Mm-hmm. We are such a small piece of that puzzle. Yeah. Um so I think that So it's the tail wagging the dog when we let that one moment or maybe let's say they consistently aspirate on thin liquids and they cough every time. See, that's the other issue. It's not just do they aspirate, it's what do they do with that aspiration, right? Right? Do they cough the majority of it up? Because we're always micro-aspirating mm-hmm. all the time. Yep. So I guess what I would argue is for people, and again, going back to another podcast with uh, with Julie Barkmeyer-Kramer about um, the, the, the expert rant number two, where she talked about people are, you know, getting upset about getting enough frames, uh, pulses per second, because if you have seven pulses per second or 15 or 30, 30 is best. What difference does it make if all you're going to do is thicken their liquids anyway? Exactly. And if if thickened liquids are safer, why do we have imaging? Why doesn't everybody just at the bedside, why aren't we all okay with just thickening liquids at the bedside? Because it's safer for everybody, no matter the physiology, right? Right. I mean, we have to really think about the extent to which we are putting weight on this idea. Absolutely. So tell me this, for all the people who are right now stressed out and going, I just want to go back to this idea that you haven't seen a patient in a long time <laughs> who you would recommend thinking. What you're not saying is, it's not that you haven't seen a patient who aspirates. You're not saying I haven't seen a patient who most people would recommend it. You're saying those criteria do not flag thickening liquids as the right. outcome for me, where it flags thickening liquids as the outcome recommendation for other people those criteria don't make you go down the path of thickened liquids is what you're saying yeah and I think it's um I I really do consider thickening liquids as a very last resort Mm -hmm. so when it comes to making these types of decisions and have it's not even making these decisions we don't make these decisions right it's all about when you're having a conversation with family Mm -hmm. and the patient Mm -hmm. about what this patient should should not wants to eat right yeah. it's a risk benefit analysis yeah sure so for me you have to have the conversation with somebody where if they're aspirating thin liquids you look at that and you say on one hand you are you're consuming this liquid that is going into your airway for whatever physiologic reason, Mm -hmm. there are a multitude of options. Mm -hmm. One of them may be thickening the liquid. Mm -hmm. One of them may be an option. There are some pros to that. People would argue that for some patients, and I have heard this, and I have seen this with patients before, that they just find it so much easier. Yeah. Are there many patients who on nectars 
barely cough and they hate the constant coughing. These are people mm -hmm. who are like sixes and sevens on the PAS. And for them, maybe they've never had a pneumonia in years of aspirating, mm -hmm. but they just are bothered by the coughing. The difference there is you give them the options and they right. choose, right? It's a matter of, it's not of saying I'm deciding for you. Oh, he doesn't like coughing, so you must do this and you must do right. that, which unfortunately for institutionalized individuals who are in a sniff, Yep. especially if they've got dementia and they don't have caregivers to speak on their mm -hmm. behalf, they end up being treated in a paternalistic way um, depending on the perspective of the, of the treating clinician. Right. And there might be people who say, this is a person who wants ice cream, he coughs and he's happy, or this is a person who wants ice, ice cream, not in my backyard, you're not exactly. aspirating in my backyard. Not in my watch. Or it, yep. I don't want anything to happen to him. So yep. it's that continuum of clinical approaches, and it's not just speech pathologists. Physicians do this, nurses do this, mm -hmm. there's a continuum. I think the difference is there might be some evidence across a continuum in other fields that we don't have, and we. my thought is we tend to be more fearful. Yeah, and I think, I think there's people listening right now that say, well, duh, of course you have to include the patient and you have this conversation. But I'm going to take it one step further and, and say there's an important distinction on how this conversation happens. Yes. One is, this drives me nuts, is I recommend mm -hmm. that you consume thick and liquids because you're aspirating, but it's up to you. Yeah. I'll let you make that decision. Well, like, yeah. did you really let them make right. that decision? Because they don't have the wherewithal they to don't. make They're afraid. And exactly. they, the whole reason they're going down to this big test is this whole pass-fail thing. And so they're very concerned about those recommendations. And I have to say, I just present the options. Right. I don't have to worry about saying whether or not I recommend one thing or the other because lately what I've been doing, especially in, in our research patients, is saying a lot of times like, so can I eat so-and-so? And say, here's what happens when you eat it. And I'll give them other examples. I say, do you ever feel bloated with salt? Do you ever have reflux mm -hmm. with tomatoes? Do you have blah, blah, blah? When you have reflux, you could be aspirating that. I could tell you don't eat tomatoes, and that right. could be worse for your lungs. Um, let me just tell you all what, what your options are, and then you have the right to choose. If the, These are people who have the capacity con to consent for a research study or for surgery or whatever yeah. else. They have the capacity to choose whether or not, as a diabetic, they're going to still have you know, uh, alcohol and a lot of sugar. Right. Or if, as someone who's prime, uh, likely to have a stroke, if they're going to have a whole lot of salt. They, yeah. they can choose that, those things. Who am I to say that a stroke is less important or a diabetic right. attack is less important than pneumonia, which can't even be confirmed that it's actually right. aspiration pneumonia as opposed to community-acquired pneumonia. Exactly. But I just wanted to give a couple of analogies that come to mind when I think about the whole idea of taking foods away. And I think first about, or the whole idea that the first aspiration event equals, for sure, thick and liquids. And I think about PTs who know the first time someone's going to take a step, they might falter, they might fall. They don't say, that first step was, you know, it was crazy. We're going to have to make it bedridden. They don't do that, right. right? And I also think about people who don't want to follow through, or people where there's a struggle between what the clinicians want to see happen sometimes and what the patients want. So in a speech, in a comdis department as of late, I interact with a lot of people who do hearing. And I've learned that, I already knew that high-frequency hearing losses were among the more common. I think of high-frequency hearing losses as the thin liquids of hearing, right? Yeah. It's like the thing that people don't do well with. And what happens is they get these hearing aids that actually aren't necessarily better. Their quality of life isn't necessarily better. So they have these people after them, dad, we're your hearing aid, we're your hearing aid. And they're like, 
I can't hear anything with that thing. Or there's, a, there's you know, this high frequency yeah. thing. Or, you know, there's feedback and blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't help them with background noise when they go to a restaurant. Because it's what you hear, what in the right. pure tone hearing booth situation or these um, <laughs> single word level hearing distinctions, you can identify the problem, but it doesn't translate to how this person actually lives. <laughs> and it's the same thing. It's like you can find aspiration on one swallow in this very concrete experimental situation where you're telling someone that swallows swallowing barium there are all these cues that maybe mess them up and then somehow you're assuming that translates to a restaurant eating food in a restaurant right and we can't make those assumptions for people's real lives we have to say these are your options right two things one um you've been hanging out too much with one of our previous guests dr lotto because (laughs) your analogies have become so hearing centric it's out of control like every every podcast now has the word pure tone in it somewhere yeah it's a problem two um two is i completely agree with that i think we need to venture a little bit more in in where the decision making is more difficult. So I think it's mm-hmm. a little bit easier when our patients are maybe an outpatient, they're cognitively intact, we can provide them the information. Like, this is a little more softball. Like, sure. that's an easier conversation to have. Okay. Where I think it becomes more challenging is when our patients don't have the capacity mm-hmm. to make the decisions and the diet recommendation really does fall more on us. Mm-hmm. Where you know, the way that I envision it is, um, oh God, are we starting baby analogies already? I haven't even had this kid. <laughs> but the toys where it's like you have the different shapes mm-hmm. and you have to fit the shape, yeah. the block into the right uh-huh. thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's our job is to figure out which one fits. So mm-hmm. it's like, choose choose your shape, choose the diet. Which except, one are you going to... Except it's actually like that game of perfection from the 80s where you have to put <laughs> it in a certain time frame or it would all blow up yeah, in your face. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Where our job is just to find... To find, to match it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this patient is perfect for this diet. Mechanical soft, nectar thick liquids with a right head turn, uh, alternate liquids and salt. Like, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Yeah. So I think this is where it becomes challenging is when it really does fall more on us. Mm-hmm. To We have to label their, you have to put it in the note. At the end of the note, it says recommended diet. Like, we have to put something there. Mm-hmm. So I think where the thickened not thickening comes into play is how how much aspiration are you comfortable with with thin before you'll recommend something else comfortable with can we unpack the word comfortable because the literature does not necessarily show that again that it's the thin liquid that if you aspirate on thins versus nectar versus anything else mm-hmm. that you're more or like less less likely to right. get pneumonia in fact the free free water protocol is one where if all things are in check yep they're pretty good to have thin liquids and oh by the way we just published a paper on ice and a lot of people say i've been recommending ice plus npo and their justification is that it's the thermal is going to impact them and swallow better, and that thin a little bit of thin liquid is better than a lot. But we don't actually know what's happening there. So I question the word comfortable because mm-hmm. if you look at it, it still comes down to an SLP's emotional response to yep. the situation. It's true. I would love it if there's if we could respect that the lack of knowledge doesn't mean that we go crazy and freak out. It's not like mm-hmm. your kid, dis- your one-year-old disappeared in the grocery store. <laughs> that is a moment of not knowing where something is where you can. Now, this is an 11-year-old. Okay, he's got a phone. Let me call him. My level of discomfort is quite different in that situation. Yep. Both with a lack of knowledge. You don't know where this kid is, right? Yep. So I would say 
until the literature tells me that it's worse to aspirate on thins than it is to perhaps have thick and thick and liquids which maybe they aspirate on maybe they don't have anything maybe they get dehydrated not because they don't absorb it according to some studies Mm -hmm. but because they just don't drink it right I'm not I I I am not comfortable with making these decisions make based on comfort alone for sure I think this the the situation in this context is you've done an an instrumental evaluation on somebody Mm -hmm. and they aspirate like crazy with thin liquids Mm -hmm. you've tried every strategy in the book um and with thickened liquids, they don't, mm-hmm. for whatever physiologic reason. And what's the patient's... I mean, you're saying the patient has dementia and can't make they a decision. They can't make the decision. Mm-hmm. It's on you. Mm-hmm. And you have to decide if you're going to allow this person allow. Isn't that awful that we just use see, that language? I, see, this is the issue. I don't think it's just my decision. I Okay, are we talking about a situation there were also no caregivers? Yes. There's nobody representing yep. this patient. Which and is somehow frequent. Listen... That can't possibly, I don't believe that that has to fall on me. It's a team decision. For sure. So I would I would certainly, in those situations, I'd make a greater effort to mm-hmm. include a team, yep. nursing, um, physician, et cetera, to say, this is what I know yep. about what can happen. This is what I don't know. I am taking a risk by making these assumptions. But in the same way that you don't know exactly which, you know, blood thinning me- uh, rec- uh, medication might be the one to start with. You just start with something and they have these symptoms and then you switch. Yep. That's what I would do. I would take it exactly 100%. the same way that every other clinician mm-hmm. takes where they say, we need to start you out on some meds. There are three different kinds. The ones with the least side effects, they all have side effects. Mm-hmm. They all have side effects. Some of them might be a heart attack. Some of them might be, you know, a little nausea. Right. We don't know which one it's going to be. Let's start off this on a low dose, but we got to keep track of this. And that's where the speech pathologists are having the yeah. issue. It's not the diet. It's their inability to track what's happening. Yeah. So we can't be getting upset about our inability to be sure because no one is sure exactly. about anything. Yeah. And I think that... Um... I think the problem that we have as speech pathologists is that we put too much of that um, decision-making that's out of our scope of practice, within our scope of practice. Right. So we become a pulmonologist. Yes. We become a nutritionist. That's right. We become a... Rheologist. Yeah, exactly. So... A dentist. I think in those like situations... all the stuff about dentition and should we be cleaning teeth for crying out loud. Yep. I think that... Um, I think in those situations, there's that pressure of, well, I have to make this decision on my own. This is my job. Yeah. This is what I get paid for. But other fields don't feel quite the same stress about that. In in my communication with them, because talking to somebody does not mean that you don't know what you're doing, and there are many of them on the ground. Right. Have you been to a hospital where there's only one physician? I hope not, because I'd rather die in the streets perhaps, yeah. then find out there's this big, giant 500-bed hospital or however many beds, and they ain't got but one physician. Meanwhile, you'll find out that they just don't have SLPs on the weekend. Right. You're like, the heck? Right. <laughs> What's going on? Exactly. So I think this we can't let the system pressure us to the point where we start making bad decisions because we've decided a bad decision is better than no decision or inaction is better than right. a bad action. Yep. Um, and the more that we perpetuate, push that forward... It's a problem. So look, can we just go back to what you said about speech pathologists? You've done the fluoro or, or the fees yeah. or whatever it is, and you've noticed that there are these differences in how they swallow. Mm-hmm. So 
first thing is, what should we be doing at that level? The diet is not the reason we're there, mm -hmm. right? Yep. The reason we're there is to understand how physiology does or does not manage these various bolus types. Yeah. Just like a PT might be there to say, you can do a simple uh, low pile carpet or hardwood floors. You can't do stairs, you can't do ramps, you can't do elevators and escalators because you gotta move too fast and the, your planning's not good. They're not saying, send them home and please uh, please buy a new house because you have stairs. They take all of that into consideration. Oh, you have a shag carpet? Okay, how can we do something because you trip on the shag carpet or whatever it is? But they're still looking at physiology on top of functional things. Right. We are not looking at physiology as much as we're looking at the functional diet things. Meaning, to me, when I look at a floral, I try to understand is the system adapting as it should and making the right plan for that bolus? And if not, why? Right. We have those inf that information, but what do we do? We ignore all the normal swallows and talk about the abnormal ones. We talk about all, we say, well, nectar and honey are fine. I don't need to look at that physiology. Right. But let me just look at the bad swallows. Oh, mm -hmm. there's a delay, right? right? With the thins, or the thin moves too fast for the swallow. Well, why is the swallow too slow? Why aren't we asking why the right. swallow isn't accommodating because it was last week before the stroke? Now this week it's not. Right. So that to me is why we're on the ground. And oh, by the way, while we get over this hump, because I need to know what I'm going to rehab, which is this delay, in this interim, I'm going to justify this diet because, you know, this is a longer hump. I'm in a sniff, whatever. But again, we don't do that because the snapshot in time for instrumental is the most important part of that report, which is that very last part, which is your diet recommendation. All the right. stuff in the middle is often not going to be acted upon. Right. Yeah, I feel like we need to like release some of the baggage as speech pathologists of putting so much pressure on ourselves on the diet recommendation because mm -hmm. it takes our away our ability to focus on the swallow. Exactly. It's sort of like that girlfriend that's like being weighed down by that deadbeat boyfriend and you're like <laughs> you just need to get rid of all your attention to this toxic situation and focus on yourself. It's like, you know get what? rid of this like drama of the, the diet. What diet? What are we doing? Oh, but they have this diagnosis. When you talked about that girl, I thought you were talking about the wedding and how somewhere between engagement and the actual wedding, it's like you're about to like break up with your like fiance because the wedding is driving you crazy. That's where I thought you were going with that. Oh my gosh. But it's, you know, I think that we get so wrapped up in, in making these decisions that aren't our decisions necessarily to make. Mm -hmm. Our decision to make is to look at the physiology. It might be our decision, but it's part of a team effort mm -hmm. is what it should be. Just like in a physician, they're ultimately going to make a decision about something, right? Some course sure. of action. Mm -hmm. But they rarely do that in a vacuum. And maybe there are circumstances where they do, right? But usually they have team meetings. Yep. And I, I think that we can change the culture around our decision making mm -hmm. is what it sounds like what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We need to get rid of the, the idea that our job is just to... Okay, what's safe? What's right. safe? What's not safe? Right. What do I put in the what what do I order in the you know, computer? The thing that also drives me bonkers is many times colleagues and you know, people I don't know or just things I've heard where people say, if I end up with dysphagia, do not put me on thinking liquids. But that's what they recommend all the time. Right. So you're saying you would be willing to die first, assuming you're right that this thin liquid is gonna kill somebody or end up with multiple maladies and be in the hospital, you would rather that, but you're treating your patients with the same level of, you know, concern and respect. So I do wonder about those situations. The thing is, is that you could see the same swallow, the same exact swallow across 50 different people mm -hmm. and recommend 
and have a plan, 50 different plans. Well, that's what Carney because B 2015 shows us, which is, um, or, or are you talking no, about I'm saying like the same SLP? The, I'm saying like, you, in that situation where I said, where you have a patient that as, grossly aspirates thin liquids, mm-hmm. doesn't aspirate thickened liquids, mm-hmm. you might have a very different plan of action because this patient just had a stroke and they're walking laps around the unit. They're mm-hmm. cognitively intact. This next patient just had a lung transplant mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they're immunocompromised, mm-hmm. they, whatever their background is, they're septic. Every patient is going to be very different that we're just not trained enough in medicine in general and nutrition in general Agreed. to put that sort of recommendation on ourselves. And you know, here's the thing. Where did it come from? So in my dysphagia class, I don't spend the whole session, the whole semester talking about the things that they're probably actually going to do because I'm trying to refocus the scope of what their job is. I don't spend a whole lot of time telling them how I decide on diet recommendations. Because I I just believe that it's taking up, sucking up all the room, all the air in the room, right? It's, it's ultimately what you're, what you're being pointed out for. And I think that you're probably yeah. right that if if that's where our field is, then ultimately look at the number of diets we can choose from. Yeah. It's almost just like throw a dart and that one could work too. I don't know. But yeah. is that really, are we just diet dolers? Are we just dole out diets? I don't think <laughs> so. But unfortunately, that's what we ultimately get most upset about. Yeah. So I think about ITSI and the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative. That's a lot to say. Anyway, I think that ITSE is probably a step in the direction of, in terms of research, being able to standardize the kinds of things that thickened liquids can and can't do. Because across all the studies now, if somebody says pudding, what do you mean pudding? Under what, like what pudding or nectar? Okay, so I just wanted to make sure that we included this one study by Asako Kanoka. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. And by the way, she's doctor now. She just finished her PhD. Um, I believe with Susan Langmore up in Boston, and she has this paper entitled A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Pneumonia Associated with Thin Liquid Versus Thickened Liquid Intake in Patients Who Aspirate. And I pulled something from the abstract that I want to read because I think it's important. Um, The goal was to investigate whether drinking thin liquids with safety strategies increases the risk for pneumonia as compared to thickened liquids in patients who have demonstrated aspiration on thins. There was no significant difference in the risk of pneumonia in aspirating patients who took thin liquids with safety strategies compared to those who took thickened liquids only. Um, and of course, these, these patients happen to have a low risk of pneumonia. But even if you were like, okay, gosh, I don't wanna be the thick liquid police. Why not thin liquids with strategies? Oh, yeah. And yes, if they maybe didn't tuck their chin as well and whatever, this study suggests in many of our patients, not we think that the vast majority of our patients, like everybody's at risk immediately for aspiration pneumonia. And that's not necessarily the case. I think the vast majority of our patients are actually on the lower end of risk for pneumonia. And this study is saying, if you, you can't bring yourself to just saying thin, thin with a strategy is just as good as thick. For sure. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes the strategies don't work, but you know what? aspiration is not the worst thing in the world exactly it's okay yeah patients aspirate like it's okay Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that we're rogue therapists or 
anything like that, but good lord, when it comes to rehab, don't you want somebody drinking what's more natural? When was yeah. the last time you drank something that was nectar thick liquid? Um, um, I think I had like a mango smoothie thing the other day, but I chose to do that because it was delicious. Yes, exactly. I mean, I like a very pulpy orange juice. That's my thing, but that's my decision. You yeah. know, I'm I can decide I want to chase it down with a clear glass glass of water right after. Well, I think that you know, there's this these thick and liquid challenges that are everywhere, and what's always funny to me about that challenge is that. The challenge is to drink one sip of thick and liquids, <laughs> and it's called a challenge. It's like, oh, my God, gross. Really, if you're a therapist that is recommending thick and liquids, spend a day. Yeah. Spend a whole day where no matter what you drink, you have to thicken it to nectar mm-hmm. thick liquid. Mm-hmm. That will give you some perspective. Yeah. For sure. I had to do that when I was a student, and it really gave me a, a sense of what I am subjecting my patients to. Hopefully it'd be more effective than the five pound bag of flour or egg challenge that they give to prepubescent girls and boys (laughs) so that they don't have sex because let me tell you half that class was all about it afterward right after there was not a deterrent to sex I just wanted to add that in there Um, so anyway um, now let's move to this idea of exercise I just want to say I love that this is diet and exercise because they're both so, so they can be aversive and repulsive to a lot of people, like the idea of having, you know, a gluten-free diet or a fat-free diet or a sugar-free yeah. diet. A lot of people hate dieting, right? And they say it's about a lifestyle. And a lot of people hate exercise or just they do it because they know it's good for them. But if they could choose between Netflix and chill, they would do that <laughs> over like going to the gym and getting all sweaty. Right. So the idea of diet and exercise kind of applies to these SLP concepts. Um, but I'm sure it's, I'm, I'm hoping it's, it's fairly good knowledge that there isn't a lot of evidence for a lot of the, not just the thickening practices that we do, but also the treatments that we, that we decide on and not sort of outside of diet, but specifically movements that people need to achieve. But I just want to make sure we understand that within the world of rehab, there is a continuum in terms of what we might be working on. We might be doing something like helping somebody to learn, if you're a PT, helping someone to learn to adapting to walking with a crutch or learning, helping them to learn how to use their wheelchair because they, you know, maybe they are amputee. They're, they're not going to walk, right? There's prosthesis is not an option for them. That is one form of rehab. And yes, people might say it's comp- compensatory, but that's just one end of the continuum. Mm-hmm. The other end of the continuum is restoring function 100%, right? So somebody broke their leg, a young, healthy person in a sporting situation, it's a clean break. They have a cast and they need help sort of getting back, literally getting back on their feet again. Right. But the PT says, you know, there's, you know, 100% chance. They've seen a million of these cases. You'll be back out there walking again. You know, that's that's not yeah. going to be an issue. So that's the range we're dealing with. And we love it when we're on the restoring functional swallow range. And we hate it when all we can do is tell someone that they need a tube. Right. Like that, we hate that, right? Um, but we have to remember that there's an assumption that compensatory strategies don't have any rehab potential and all maneuvers have rehab potential, right? So what do I mean? An example is if everyone listening puts their chin up and swallows saliva, you'll see how hard that is to do. And if you put your chin all the way up and swallow uh, a 
big old bottle of water, it's often more difficult and challenging actually than drinking water in the neutral position. So the idea of challenging the impairment versus facilitating it is really a difference we need to be thinking about. Mm -hmm. And so if we say that somebody has a delay and we tell them to do a chin down because we think that it'll take a little longer for the bolus to move down there, that was an idea of facilitating that particular impairment. If you want to challenge that impairment, you tell someone with a swallow onset delay or poor oral control mm-hmm. to put their chin up. Right. Now you're challenging it. And I know a lot of people just like left a uh, dude staying in their underwear hearing that idea. Yeah. Like they are so afraid, like, oh my God, who would do that? Who would tell somebody to put their chin up when they have a delay? But what does that tell us about our approach? Yeah, I think I think the most interesting part of what of everything that you just said was that the way that you categorized things as facilitate or challenge was not based on, well, I saw a paper by so-and-so in 2000-whatever that said that this is a challenge. It's based on understanding the physiology Mm -hmm. and understanding what these types of maneuvers could do to the swallow. It makes sense because you understand the physiology Mm -hmm. and how to challenge it. Mm -hmm. I think that that's more of the critical thinking approach that we need to take as speech pathologists when we're looking at how to rehab a swallow. That makes us speech pathologists. A pathologist is somebody who understands the physiology, the pathophysiology. Yep. And goes from there. Yep. Because let's, let's just say this outright. The research on treatment in our field is pretty crappy. Let me read a quote to back you up. (laughs) They start as early as um, 1995 with um, Jay Rosenbeck and some some work that Susan Langmore has done. And I'm so grateful that she's continued this work with um, Jess Pasegna, who was her postdoc, so she's Dr. Pasegna. And they have this paper um, about efficacy and dysphagia management. And they... They, I'm going to read this quote. The field of dysphagia, they conclude, the field of dysphagia lacks sufficient, well-designed, large studies to support clinical utility of many swallowing and non-swallowing exercises for dysphagia. But the current lack of efficacy for many of the exercises being taught and prescribed to patients with dysphagia should not imply that these should not be prescribed. It is simply a reminder that they have not been fully proven to help strengthen swallowing further. And there's something else they say, and then I'm gonna dive off from there, which is that it is easier but misleading to follow the quote, experts instead of the evidence. Experts provide wisdom and experience, but their word is not gold. The advice for them is the same as for being a clinician. Use external evidence to judge the appropriateness of an intervention for your particular patient. A dangerous trap is to do what the experts do. However, just like a poorly designed study, an expert's opinion may have flaws as well. This this is like, I'm telling you, right? I just like... So the reason I wanted to read that, I didn't want it to be my interpretation, everyone should read this paper, is that a lot of people ask me, what would I do? Or I have a patient Mm -hmm. who, I have a patient who, I mean, that is a thing where after you're done a talk, anyone who's been at ASH or DRS, really, that's the question we don't love as much. I have a patient who, because oftentimes they're saying, what would I do with this one patient? And when I say, can you help me understand what the patient's problem is? What's his swallowing problem? They don't know. They just know what he aspirated on, or he came into the facility with this diagnosis. Right. So 
I think that our focus in evidence, the reason the evidence isn't working is not just the clinicians. Hello, the researchers. Yep. Are doing, aren't doing the work as well. How many papers have I published showing that I have identified the swallowing impairment first and went from there? Mm-hmm. I've never published one. That's the paper I need to be publishing. And it's sort of a call to research to yes. say, we can't get mad at the clinicians for saying they don't even know why anybody swallowed. Well, none of our research studies are based first on individuals with UAS impairments defined as XYZ underwent the Shakir maneuver. No. Right. You would think that they would start with people with UES issues, you have your treatment period, and then check the UES again and say, people who aspirated on post-swallow aspiration, post-swallow residue because of the UES had the Shakir, and then the UES-related issues resolved, leading to less aberrant bolus flow. Those are the studies we need, and those are the studies that don't actually really exist. And even those studies in that perfect scenario may not be the answer mm-hmm. because you have maybe half of those patients had an electrolyte imbalance right. and their muscles weren't going to improve because they had some other um, metabolic issues that needed to be resolved right. or maybe some of the, you know, there's or, so or, many other Or a nerve inhibition issue where they needed Botox more than they needed exactly. behavioral therapy. But the point is at least yep. you knew they had a UES problem to right. be rehabbed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I cannot tell you how many times people have said, well, so-and-so study said that the effortful, I'm like, okay, let's go to the effortful for a second. Do we know what they were squeezing and where? Exactly. Okay, fine. We don't know that. Let's go to something that's more defined. Let's go to superglottic. Do we know that they actually did the supraglottic or that they had a specific airway protection issue that where a post-swallow issue needed to be sort of expelled? Yeah. Did they only line up those as patients or they say, patients with dysphagia yeah. did this? It's my walking example. Yeah. It's like a PT study saying, we took in people with walking issues. Some of them were three months old. Some of them didn't have legs and some of them had a stroke. They went through this black box <laughs> and when they came out, of them were better. And you're like, what do I do with that information? Yes, they all had a walking issue, but the why is what is the issue. So what's the argument against doing those studies? It's we would never get enough patients to do a full study. I would much rather a case control, lower level scientific study or like a single subject Mm -hmm. type thing to really detail it than the big um, randomized control trials that everybody puts out there when we don't even know how to define our populations. Exactly. And I think, I mean, that's the beauty of speech pathology is that we, it's so, every patient is so complex that you can't just rely on, well, this paper told me to do this. Exactly. It's never going to be like Mm -hmm. that. It's the beauty and the curse. It's the beauty and the curse, but I, I think that's why we have to, you know, coming back to the idea of using physiologic rationales, it always comes back to understanding the physiology, Mm -hmm. right? Like the better you understand that, you combine that with what's out there in the literature, the best recommendations you can make for your patient. Yep. And here, I mean, here we are as researchers saying, we actually don't recommend that you rely slowly on the literature because it's not going to help you. Exactly. Because the, the answer isn't there for that patient in front of you. You know, the best thing I've been hearing lately from clinicians, a lot of clinicians are saying they've been going back to just trying to really understand physiology. They've been going back yep. to fluoros and saying, what do I think is happening? Is that clinician going to get the exact same answer as you, Alicia, or me? No, but that's not the point. The point is not that we have to have 100% consensus. The point is we all come from a sound physiologic rationale that if I saw your notes, I'd say, I understand that approach. I might take in a different one, but that approach is actually a logical direction. Like they're actually getting 
trying to pair the right treatment with the impairment as opposed to handing a worksheet to everybody where they all do K and G and Mendelssohn's and it's always 10 of each yeah. three times a day. Yeah. Like that's where we're moving from. I like it when somebody goes, well, I wondered whether or not a more viscous bolus with a head turn, blah, 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 blah. And they're being creative would target X, Y, Z. Yes. To me, that is the goal. Yes. Now, is it going to be perfect? I don't know. But they're at least trying to be particular about their approach yeah. and individualize it. It's funny because, you know, being in research now, one of the things that actually peeves me is when I see clinicians arguing and somebody is saying, well, show me the research on that. Show me the research on anything. Exactly. Like, why does it ha- always have to be, well, well, there's no paper that says that. There's no paper. It's like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the physiologic rationale. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that sometimes we go too far into the evidence-based mm-hmm. spectrum where it's like, well, this paper, this paper, this paper, this paper. Well, it's like, well, when you really look at those papers, like, they don't actually help that much. So let's go back on the pendulum a little it's bit a and talk it's about evidence, the physiology. Evidence-based, or th- sorry, theory-based practice. It's, yes. You're grounded in a theory, an idea, a concept, a theoretical construct that you're coming from and yeah. saying, I'm taking the approach that the reason there was a delay is likely a sensory issue. It is The rationale is this. In the clinical evaluation, I poked around, he couldn't yeah. feel it. When I asked him about something that was stuck back there, he couldn't feel it. Yeah. When I told him to clear it, he couldn't localize it. This is one rationale, reason why I'm going to, I'm not saying motor's not a problem. I'm just going to, I'm going to target sensory. I might get more bang for my buck. Yep. For those reasons, I modified the bolus textures. I know that the re- evidence is mixed in terms of thermal effects, taste effects, etc. However, it was the back of the tongue, cranial nerve nine, mm-hmm. and I'm focusing on the extent to which I could target nine. Yep. That to me is a sound physiologic rationale. It is a theory based in that some studies do show more effects than others with right. modifying the bolus. Yes, you've targeted the part of the body that might be critical, glossopharyngeal, got it. And you're going to do a targeted approach for that patient and see if it works in that patient. So I think the theory-based approach as opposed to, because what happens is the people who say everyone is cookie cutter and they want a recipe, they're just trying to get the recipe from the evidence now. Yeah. They still want to be told what to do instead of from a clinician at their facility. Now it's, I want to know what exact, this paper is going to tell me just what to do. And both are dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm starting to breathe after that, like, spewing of information I from know. my mouth. I think it, you know, I think so many of our podcasts these days come back to, and I'm, my favorite podcast that we done is the, that we did is the one with Dr. Lotto. Oh, okay. talking about theory-based, um, theory-based practices, because I think so much of what we do, it really comes back to the idea that, um, you know, making a rationale, and I love when I read clinic notes that, really describe that process, Mm -hmm. that thought process, and really justify why they're taking this approach to to treatment to actually rehab this well. That gets me excited. That, if I'm an inpatient rehab and I get a note that describes that, I mean, it's gotta be like gold, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, versus I saw this, I saw this, or even worse is the laundry list of impairments. Yeah. And what do you do with that? What do you do with that? I don't even understand. Yeah. I mean, it's so bizarre. I, and I understand that, but you don't know on which bolus, why, when, and where, and relative to what period in the in the examination. And then it doesn't matter what and my impressions are. Brain. Yeah. It doesn't matter what my impressions are because you can read that and come to a different conclusion, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's just like many other things that we read where you read poetry and you're like, oh, I took that to mean this. It doesn't matter. You, everyone still has the words, right. but you're interpreting 
interpretation is allowed to be different because we at least know what happened. Yep. On that note. My job. Diet and exercise. Um, I don't think we can get away from it. Diet and exercise is still core to what we do. We just want it to be founded on solid physiology, like Mm -hmm. rationales as opposed to I feel either your gut feelings or this is the worksheet I have. Yeah. I think I think our field is going to evolve a lot in the next five to ten years on how we approach treatment in dysphagia. I hope so. I hope so because I uh, uh, it was 2015 when um, Jay Rosenbeck was here and I Mm -hmm. said your paper is 20 years old your paper from 1995 about efficacy in dysphagia management where you said somewhere along the way that in dysphagia people are going to say hold up you can't bill for this because you're actually not showing any improvement you mean you can't throw shit at the wall to see what sticks i mean you can <laughs> but should you be yeah. be building your career and actually building hundreds of thousands of dollars across your career maybe millions yeah. over over throwing crap at the wall i hope not right. and i asked him i said two year 20 years later uh did you do you think it's still a problem and do you think that your paper would still be so relevant and he said i 100% expect that it's still a problem. Now, keep in mind, this is somebody who has been integral to helping to lead our yeah. field, and his, it's not somebody who's dropped out of the scene. He goes to meetings. He yeah. understands. He hears what clinicians are saying, and he's still saying the shift hasn't quite happened. Right. So I think people think that we need sort of that savior to come down and do this stuff for us, but actually it's going to have to be a grassroots thing where everybody decides to take a just a slight turn to the left. That's yep. what statistical significance is. It's a consistent tiny change from most people that will yep. get used statistical significance, not five people going a whole lot and exactly. nobody else moving. Yep. So you can't have the outliers. You can't have, be... Outliers can't fix this problem. It has to be everyone looking in the mirror and saying, this is where I am. I give out worksheets to every friggin' person who comes in here. I give it to 50% regardless of the issue. And so to me, that's what needs to change. Good talk.